So we're going to do this Bible difficulties. There is just a quick set of notes for you to follow along. If you didn't get them when you came in, Pat just graciously volunteered haha, to uh, hand those out. Raise your hand. He'll get them to you. Take your Bibles and go with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. Okay, we're turning there. Let me get started, though, with a couple questions that this is, imp- this is leading up to what we want to talk about. When you were a kid, what were some of the popular toys and games that they had, you played a lot? Monopoly? Toy guns. <laughs> What's that? Okay. Lincoln Logs. Okay. Legos? The Rock'em Sock'em. Okay. Let me ask you a question with this. Okay. Because we have a variety of ages here. Okay. What is different about the toys today compared to the toys back then? Or what, the things that kids play with? What's that? They need batteries. Did you have toys that needed batteries? Not too many. Not too many. Okay. Any other differences? Some were made of matchbox cars. Were always the they were Tonka trucks were made of metal. Now they're yeah. Things have changed in that regard. Okay. Yeah. Uh, do did you ever do the the no no the video game stuff? I never did when I was a kid, and there was a good reason. They didn't have them. Okay, that just happened. How has travel changed from when you were young? Do you think travel has changed as a whole? Yes, no? Okay, how so? What's that? Oh, car seats. Oh, when we were kids, there was the, the, the favorite thing to do in the back seat. Yeah. Send the way back. There was, there was always the hump to argue over with. In your cars, did you guys argue over the hump? Yeah. Some are looking at me like, what are you talking about? <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, no, in fact, I don't recall as a kid ever having been told to buckle seatbelts. Yeah. What's that? They didn't have them. <laughs> okay, let me ask you this question. In what ways does TV differ from when you were a kid? Color? You didn't, you didn't have color TV? How many did not have color TV when you were growing up? Okay, okay, okay. How many of you, when you were growing up, you had three channels? Yes? Okay. If you had them. It all depended. And you may have had to go up on the roof and turn the antenna to get that third channel. Okay. And so TV differs in what way? Hundreds, hundreds of channel. Okay. What's that? Oh, the, 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 the themes of the programs were very oriented to family. Yeah, yeah. Less commercials and programs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember. Do you guys remember Gene Turney? Used to be a member here, a, a former pastor. I remember, he, you, this is years ago. I remember going to his house and he says, I have really created an invention that is going to advance TV. I said, what is it? He's, the remote control. I said, what? He had a cue stick that he would sit in his chair and he attached another stick to it and he could push the buttons. There was a time that was the remote. Okay, there, there was a time. Okay, let me ask you this question. In what ways do telephones differ? No party lines? Okay. How many used party line phones? You know what we're talking about. Okay, okay. Anything different about telephones? 
you got one at a time. No cranks? I never used a crank one, okay? You never had a phone? Oh, you see, you just had a string that went to your neighbor's house in, in a tin can? Okay. Yeah, somebody. Okay, and I've used this as an illustration. What's this mean when we use it? We're on the phone. My grandkids have no idea what that means. They go like this. Isn't that strange? Just the little things. And let me ask you this question. How has shopping changed from when you were little? What's that? You went to the store. Now a lot of it is online. That's what you said first, right? Online. Anything else change about shopping? What's that? Credit cards. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The service at the stores, the, the cost has changed? Okay. Let me, let me ask, has prices changed for things since you were younger? Okay, let's pick a couple dates. Let's go back to 1957. Some of you are like, whoa, that's way back. Some of us are saying we were alive at that time. Okay. Gallon of gas, 24 cents. Okay, minimum wage was a buck. And uh, let's see, a new home, $20,000. Woo, woo. Okay. Now this, let's jump up in the head. This is average things in 65. New house there. I don't know how come there's such a difference, but these are the figures. Income was right around 6,500. Cars were 26. Gasoline, 31 cents a gallon. And then the food prices you can see there. Let's jump up a little bit more. 75 to 2015, the comparisons. Okay? For the average, different prices, wages. Now in 2021, what is the minimum wage now? Is there one? It just keeps on going. Okay, so let me ask a question. Things are changing constantly. Some things for the better. Okay, let's admit, a remote control is a whole lot nicer than getting up. Okay, more channels than three and then having to go up and move the antenna. It is nicer. Okay, um, I, I agree with you. The advertisements, get rid of half of them. And the programming, not as morally fit as what it should be. Let me ask a question. How has people's view of God and religion changed from when you were a kid? People, people in general, your coworkers, people around you, do you think there's been a change, like in your neighborhood, when it comes to church, for instance? What's that? Sundays were for church? Um, how many of you grew up in, an, in a community or in a time when there was the blue laws, no place was open on Sundays? Okay, some of that has created change. Let me do a survey here, just give you a cha- an idea of questions were asked in, the, in different years. Do you attend a church or a synagogue at least once a month? This is once a month, that's very seldom, but here's what the numbers were. In, uh, back in 92, 58%. 2020, only 40%. Okay, so there's, there's an obvious decline in attendance. Right? Yes? No? Okay. Uh, some, I found it more interesting, those who say I never go was only 14%, and in last, uh, last year it was just about 30%. Question, are you a member of a church or a synagogue? Again, these are very broad. If back in 92, 70% of people said they were a member someplace, now we're less than half of the population has some membership someplace. Question, do you believe in God? 
Okay, this one has changed, but very little. Very little. It's 60 and 67, 98%, but it has dropped in the, in the, down to 87%. And then it gets into questions in that survey is, what do you believe about God? And that's when you see the big differences. Do you believe that God is you know, going to judge you one day? There's a huge discrepancy in some of the survey. And so what's happening is we're running into a time and a period where things are changing and culture is changing, good, bad. In religious areas, it's, we're becoming, as a society, a more secular culture. America for the years and years has not been, it's been talked about as a Christian nation. Not anymore. We are now more and more of a secular culture. And as a result, there's more and more questions. And that means we have to answer more. And with more and more questions and more secular culture, we're going to, get, we're going to have people oppose our beliefs more and more. He talks about that in First Peter chapter 3. In First Peter 3, now the whole book of Peter talks about what to do in light of difficulties. But I want to catch one section of the book where he says in verse 14, I want to ask you to think through this text as I'm reading it. What do you see in this text? What thoughts? But and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are you. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, while having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse you of your good lifestyle or conversation in Christ." For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for doing well than for doing evil. What stands out to you? Anything in particular out of that text? Anybody want to contribute before I do? What's that? Yeah, that's the key phrase, Bob, Bob, that you brought up, and you knew that's where probably I'm going by the terminology of the class. Be ready always to give an answer. Do you have a footnote? or a comment on to give an answer. Anybody have an explanation of what that is? Anybody? The word is literally be ready to give an apologia. What does that sound like? Apologia. It, it sounds like apolog, apolog, an apology, but that's, that's kind of the word apology today doesn't carry the whole connotation. Somebody else gave me a different word for it. Apologetics is the, is the idea that we get from it. I'm going to get to that in a second. I'll explain what we mean. What we learn from this text, which you already know by experience, what you learn, some folk will question and oppose our faith. Okay? We're going to see that more and more. People challenge our faith. They challenge our faith when we say God created in seven days. They challenge our faith when we say God has moral standards. Right? Okay. And so in this text it says, okay, uh, it's going to happen. That shouldn't surprise us. Jesus said what they do to the master, they will do to the servants in John chapter 15. And he went on and said they're going to kick you out of the synagogues. They're going, family's going to be opposed to you. So no surprise that as you practice the Christian faith, some people will not be happy with you. And most of the, most of the time that opposition will come from family members. 
We just on our Bible study on Wednesday talked about how Jesus said that a lot of, that he didn't come to bring peace, but rather there was going to be division between father and son, mother and daughter, uh, parents and their, da- their in-laws. And so he predicted all that. The early church, they experienced this opposition. It still happens today. It still happens today. And so this text says, not only will we receive and be opposed, we are to overcome our fear of those folk who challenge us. Now in this context, they were suffering not just from people criticizing them, but what were they actually suffering? If you've been, uh, been following this series on Sunday nights, then, then you should know, you remember this. How, how bad did it get for the people that Peter's writing to? They're being persecuted. It's a life and death matter for them. Is that true of some Christians around this world right now? Yeah, okay. And so he says we're to overcome our fear, okay, in that sense that we're not supposed to be afraid of their terror nor be troubled that it's pulled apart. That's easy for you and me to say, but we're not the ones that are on the front lines in some culture. Some of you are getting close to that, but some of, you, uh, some of us are not on the front lines, for instance, of what has happened in, um, in that region of Burma that we've, we posted that listing that we got from one of the missionaries. We had helped finance several different ministries and churches through New, New Path, uh, Ancient Path Ministries. And uh, we had put out the news articles and had them out here the last couple of weeks for you to pick and with the sign and comments. But some of those people, their, their church building was, was burned. Their homes were burned. Some of the pastors were taken in the streets and shot by the government authorities coming through. And what would, what would be the challenge for you and me if all of a sudden they grabbed us and they threatened us in a way? I would, be, I would really be challenged if they said, if you don't deny your faith, we're going to kill your spouse, your family, your kids, grandkids. And so there was this natural human part of me that says, whoa, that could be disconcerting. That could cause fear. That could cause apprehension. He says, no, you're supposed to overcome that. How do we overcome fear? The text talks about it. We have a hope. We have a hope with even if we lose our lives, what's our hope? Yeah, okay, so we have that hope. Let me give you a third thought. All of us are supposed to be able to give an answer. When we're challenged about our faith, we're supposed to give an apologia, literally means a defense, an explanation for it. And so when we do that, when we defend our faith, even by the skeptics or the critics, when we do that, we are not supposed to be condescending. It would be easy to say, we believe there's a God. Idiots like you don't. It'd be easy to do that. It'd be easy to get online and, and make comments. Only, only those who are just the most horrible people doubt the, the inerrancy of scriptures. There are some people who are, by human standards, good people. But they still doubt. Or they have questions. And so he warns us, he says, hey, listen, you've got to be careful that when you give an answer, you do so with meekness and fear. Okay, the idea is gentle humility, self-control, that's meekness. The word praos has the idea of being under control. Oh, and respect. So I can give an answer. Can you think of anybody in Scripture that was facing opposition or questions and they were still respectful? Okay, Stephen. 
and he loses his life. Who Somebody said, Paul, when? Okay, on Mars Hill, when he's giving explanation to the Greeks who said, well, let's hear about this guy who's going to talk about the unknown God. And he's very respectful. He's not condescending to them, but he's pointed. He gives out the truth. Um, you, you have this repeatedly. You know, well, Jesus was forthright with Pilate, and yet he wasn't obstinate. He was just, you know, Pilate, here's the reality. You know, you don't have power if it wasn't given to you. It's true, but he was still doing it in a way that was appropriate. We are to live consistently with what our beliefs teach. That's where he makes that comment where he says here in verse 16, 16 17, having a good conscience. In other words, hey, whatever you're saying your belief system is, make sure you follow through with your lifestyle. This controlled defense and consistent lifestyle will only happen if we sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. What is that? What is sanctify the Lord God in your hearts? Set apart. Okay, the word means set apart. We just talked about that in the last few weeks in Foundations. How do you set apart the Lord in your hearts? By the way, who normally does the sanctifying? In Scriptures, who normally sanctifies who? God sanctifies us. That's the theme of this book where he starts off, that you have been called to live holy, to live set apart. This is one of the rare times in scriptures where we sanctify God. How do we set apart God? Keep him first in everything? I think that's a really good explanation of it. It's when we sanctify the Lord God, we determine to exalt him and to follow him. That we are saying, you are the one. You are going to be my purpose. I'm going to be loyal to you, even if it's going to be challenging to me. And so we have that idea in scriptures. Now, here, taking, taking, going along with it, is it wrong for people to ask us questions about our beliefs? Most of you are going to say, no. Can it be, can somebody asking questions, can it be wrong on their part? What's the difference? What's that? Depends how they ask. Okay, okay. I, I'm going to agree with you on that, that idea, okay? As I thought and thought and thought about it, it all depends if they're searching for answers and understanding, clarification, or when does it become wrong? When they are trying to... What's that? the argument, the ridicule, or to lead others away from an honest search, okay? So you and I say, okay, if they're rejecting and they're just, and they're causing all kinds of unbelief. And by the way, does this happen today that people in teaching positions can try to deter other people from, from believing? Oh, it's happening more and more. It's happening more and more in a variety of higher education systems and filtering all the way down. So be very, very careful. Okay, we can use such occasions to spread the gospel, yes or no? When people are asking questions. Yeah, okay. You already mentioned Paul on Mars Hill. Jesus did the same thing. Do you remember somebody coming to him who was a skeptic but asking him questions? And Jesus sat down and talked with him at length. Who'd you say? Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And by the way, does Nicodemus later on get saved? 
Yeah, he does. Okay, we learn that elsewhere. So, we are going to, in this class, what our goal is to help some of the questions that we get asked, that we get challenged with. How do we answer them? Some of the basic questions, which may include what kind of things do you get from coworkers, family members? What are some of the challenging questions that you might get asked? Why does God allow evil? Have you ever been asked that question? Yeah, yeah. Any others? Okay, bad things happen to good people. Somebody, go ahead. Okay, okay. Why does he let bad things happen to good people? Any other questions that you might run into? Yeah, go ahead. Oh. Okay, there, um, I'm going to give you an illustration of that very thing. Okay, uh, this morning we'll give you one in the morning message where David sins grievously, okay, and God says to him, you have given cause for my enemies to blaspheme me. And we'll give an illustration about one, one, one man who uh, his professors used David's experience from hundreds and hundreds of years ago against Christianity. Do people still do that, Ken? Yeah, okay. Any other questions that come to mind? How do you know your way is the right way? Um, I get asked this question as well, question of how do you know the Bible's real? Because people put it together, okay? Um, then there's questions that come up out of different pa- passages, even by young, young believers that are struggling, is, is polygamy, polygamy okay? Okay, because... Okay, multi-marriages. Did people have multiple partners in the Bible? Okay, and questions come up is, why did God destroy the Hebrews? I mean, the, uh, the, uh, everybody in the, in the Canaan except for the Hebrews? How could a loving God practice genocide? Did he? Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. Let's start off with a very basic one. That, that, again, the majority of Americans do not ask this, but it is foundational. Here's a question I want to just deal with. How do you know there's a God? How do you know there's a God? Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is where we need to start. Okay, uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Now, I'm going to run through this, okay, and I'm going to try to make this make sense. Good luck with trying to follow my reasoning because this is coming out of my brain. So that's going to make it very difficult for you. But see if you can get my thoughts. We cannot prove God through normal scientific methods. Right? Okay. Normal scientific methods, quote unquote, in order to say that something exists, what do you do? How do you do that? How do you prove it? You put it right here. You put it in front. Or in science, if it's something that you can repeat and you can make happen repetitiously, okay? Or you can see it, those types of things. What's the problem with trying to prove God scientifically? We can't see him. We can't see him. See him. Can we control him to make sure? Speak! Can we do that? 
No, we can't do that. So here's we've got a problem. Some of those scientific methods are usually the, what's observable, what's repeatable, we understand that, um, which is anything non-repeatable or non-observable usually is called an abnormality. God is a spirit. We can't see him. God is an authority. We can't command him to show up. Um, you know, God's beyond matter, time, and space. We can't understand that. I mean, we, we just are limited that bef- before creation, God was. And when did God begin? Okay, that's, that, wrap your brain around that. Because everything we know has a beginning. Okay, every, so that's really hard for us that he's outside. We can't prove him. Okay, but there are a number of realities that we cannot prove, but we commonly accept them. So if I'm talking to somebody who's skeptical and saying to me, how do you know there's a God? I want to remind them of this. I want to ask them of this. I'm going to ask them, for instance, do you believe certain historical characters lived? Do you believe Julius Caesar was a character? Do you, you folk? Yes, no? Okay, do you believe George Washington was a character? A true person? You can't make him come back and repeat him. Okay? You can't physically observe him, can you? Okay? And so by the very definition of scientific methods, you know, for some, that if there's a God, then make him appear. Well, make George Washington appear. But you believe he existed. Okay? That's where we're going to get to. Okay? So by the simple things, if you're talking to somebody and you say, well, then tell me, how do you know those historical characters? By the very fact that they're historical characters, it says they aren't here now. And so how do you, how do you prove them? Okay, does, does love exist? Is love a reality? Okay, show me love. The emotion, show love, show me love. Well, we show the expression of it, but show me love. Show me morality. Well, we, we see the results of it. We see the evidences of it. We see the footprint. But we, you know, love is a, a non-visible emotion. Okay? Um, so there's certain things that we, we accept. Love is real. Justice is real. Morality is real. We, we can only see the influence of them, okay? The evidences of them. The skeptics, you know, you may want to do this. If all of a sudden, you know, I'm talking to this skeptic here this morning and he says, well, prove that there's a God, I might just return the question. Prove there isn't. How do you prove there isn't a God? Okay? And so it, comes, it really comes down to this idea that we don't need to prove God. In fact, the reality is, I really can't prove him, but I believe by faith. Hebrews 11, you there? Okay, some of you are, are, are very familiar with this text. But in Hebrews 11, he makes this comment. He says in verse 6, without faith it is impossible to what? For he that comes to God must what? Believe that he is, okay, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Let's go back a few verses. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. 
For by it, the older saints of old obtained a good report. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things were, which are seen were not made of things which do appear. What's he mean by that verse? I accept that God created everything in seven days by faith. That God made things ex nihilo, out of nothing. I accept it by faith. Okay? Because by normal scientific methods, I can't repeat that. It's a historical thing. But I see evidences. And it's a matter of how you interpret those evidences. Do you interpret the evidences of creation and life and we're going we're to mention in a moment there's the, uh, there's the idea of a cosmological argument that is used to say there was a beginning everybody accepts that the creation there was a beginning time it began Okay, where we are is we accept that the beginning happened with God others by faith by faith say we think it happened by an event, a, a something, just happenstance. But nobody can go back there. There's nobody that can reproduce that. So by faith, we come to a conclusion of what we believe. Okay? And so with that in mind, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of proofs about God. In fact, Genesis 1.1, how does he start? In the beginning, there's no time spent on proving God. It's just, he, it's a reality. We're going to talk about that in a few moments. Our faith that God exists, is, but our faith is based on reliable observations. What I mean by that is this, okay? You put faith in a lot of things. This morning, you put faith in your car. Yes, no? Okay, you put faith when you put the key in or the fob was there when you pushed the button. You put faith that it was going to do what? Okay, you put faith that it was going to get you here. When you hit the brakes, when you pushed on the gas, whatever you did, you had faith that this vehicle would operate. Why? Why did you believe that that car was going to operate? It's done it before. You've been told. Others have assured you it's going to run. Um, you've, you've hit brakes before. Okay? And when you hit the brakes in the, in before. And so you, you, have, you have, if you have the real technical, mechanical mind, you know it's going to work because of all this gadgetry that goes together. If you're one of those people that buys car purely by color, okay? <laughs> you, know, you still have faith in this vehicle. Okay? Let, let me give you another one. Any of you ever flow, fly? You've flown? Yes? How, how does that plane get off the ground? I don't know. I'm not asking for a full explanation. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not asking you to give me all the, the scientific details about how this huge plane gets off the ground. I just know I get on the plane with the full expectation. It's going to get up. And more importantly... It's going to come down safely. Okay, okay. I know it's coming down. Okay. What goes up? Yeah, but I want it to land. Okay. How, how come we fly and some of us are total idiots about how it all works? What's that? It's been done over and over and over again. Experience. You know, whether it's been your experience or other people's experience. 
Okay? Some of you don't ever want that experience. Okay? But uh, several times when we do the teen missions trip, the first time, that's the first time for some of them to be on a plane. And they're nervous. You can tell. You know, those little armrests, when they get up, they still have imprints. Okay? You, you know that they were very nervous. Okay? Uh, but why did they get on? Because they took the word of others that, they, that it was going to work. I, I tell you where you practice faith a lot when you buy groceries, either online or in person, what do you have faith in? That you're going to have enough money to buy it? Well, that's going out the window anymore. Okay. So in the system of what you pay, you're operating by faith. What else about groceries? What's that? It won't kill you. That whatever they've done to the stuff inside isn't poisonous. You know, that it's not going to make me sick. Now, if it's coconut, it will. Okay. Okay. So we operate by faith a lot. Okay. So when you have somebody who's criticizing and saying you operate by faith, guess what? We all do. We all do. And so we operate in our normal life by faith, but we have faith. Now, this is an interesting concept. Follow this concept because when you argue for God, you're using these very same arguments that people use when they get on planes, ride in vehicles, or do shopping. Here's what I mean by that. Personal experience is valid enough to do all these things. Or the testimony of other people is valid enough to accept that you can do grocery shopping, do use your car, or as well fly in a plane. There are, or performance records. Looking and saying they've done this in the repeatability. It's done in the past. They are all legitimate supports for your faith in grocery shopping, riding a vehicle, or driving in a vehicle, and or flying on a plane. We all accept that. But when we say, let's use those same things, personal experience, testimony of others, performance records, for God, then the skeptic says, I don't want to accept that. But it's okay for him to accept it about other things in his life. But he won't accept it about God. That's why the scripture says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so what do, we, what do we have when it comes to testimony of others, performance records, personal experience? What do we have when it comes to say, here's how I know my faith is based on these different observable situations? Let me give you several of them, okay? It's the same way that we accept the existence of historical characters that we can't repeat. We can't repeat Julius Caesar, but we accept that he lived based on, he wrote and we have a very few number of copies of his writings, his Gallic Wars, things like that. We, we accept the fact that George Washington was around based upon other people gave eyewitness testimony. There is some evidences of what happened. There is the idea of they did something, they produced something. We believe that the founding fathers were real in American history. Why? We have a constitution. We have a declaration of independence. So we look and say, these people existed because they produced something. They, they, because people said they were there. Because those individuals had an impact. Same arguments for God. That there's people that talked with him that wrote about it. There, we can see the evidences of his influence. The same arguments. And, and we, we can go this way. We can say, okay... 
um, Pastor Art came to me, and he's into hunting, came to me and he said, can I hunt in the church parking lot? This is about a week ago. I said, what? You want to shoot people's tires as they come? You know, we'll be the church on the news. Welcome to our church. Boom. Okay. And he said, no. He said, I want to show you something. And he showed us a buck rub on one of the trees out here. Okay. I asked him, did you see the deer? And the normal answer is, no. So how do you know there's a deer there? Why is it some of you are going to go to a certain part in the woods, put up your deer stand, crawl up there, and you're going to go through all that effort, that labor, and freeze your toes off? You're going to do that, but you pick a certain spot. Why, Lloyd? Why would you pick a certain spot? Yeah, but why would you pick that spot? How do you know there's deer there? Oh, you saw them. Oh, well then forget Lloyd. Okay. <laughs> why does some of, you, some of you pick certain spots? What, what's the evidence? Buck rubs. Scrapes. Dung. I knew we were going to get there. Okay. okay. Or tracks. Okay, if you're, if you're hunting, how do you... We have, we have in our yard... We have signs up, squirrels not allowed. <laughs> and other critters, not invited. But every so often, there is, there is this stinky evidence left in my yard that an animal has been through there. And it's getting to bother me because this animal keeps... It's where I walk. That's where it's really bothering me, okay? And I know there was an animal there. Not because I saw the animal, but it's left evidence, okay? Bad evidence. It's left it in my yard. So we say, okay, is that a valid argument for saying, I know there was an animal in my yard? Yeah, really. I know there's a God because there's evidences. What are these evidences that are, that are used by intelligent people for other things why don't they accept it for God? There are, if you were going to make um, a, how do I want to put this? Uh, you were in educational circles and you were going to argue. You would use these arguments. These are the big names of the arguments that you would use. Cosmological, uh, teleological, the anthropological, or you and I would stick with this one most of all, the Christological arguments for the existence of God. Now, what we have is that first one, the cosmological argument is this. It basically says that everything has a beginning. And in order for something to begin, there had to be a cause of some sort. There had to be a cause. You and I conclude this. The universe had a beginning. Its cause was, but we accept that by faith. Okay? But the idea is something, it has to have a cause. And so when you're talking to somebody who, uh, uh, who professes themselves to be highly educated, fine, use the terminology. Your point is creation has a beginning. Something or someone started it. Some argue a big bang that just kind of blew everything up, which, man, in every repeatable process, when you blow things up, it scatters. But they're saying when you blow it up, it congealed, and it's like, really? Okay. Um, it caused, something caused, but there's a problem with this. I mean, it's an interesting argument, but it, it, there's a problem. This does not reveal who God is. Okay? It doesn't reveal who he is. In fact, it doesn't reveal if there's one or many. 
Okay, but, but it's interesting to just say, okay, it simply leads people to say, what or who started creation? And it's a good place for some people to start with, just say, we believe that there is a cause. And most everybody with, with um, logical thinking says, yeah, there had to be a cause. And you and I would say, okay, we're going to accept the cause, and there's other reasons for that, for that in a second. But understand, this argument doesn't answer and prove you know, without a flaw, that there is God that you know in the Scriptures. Okay, he lives outside the argument because our God, and that's the weird part, everything has a beginning. Everything has a cause except for God. Okay, so he breaks the rule. There's the teleological argument. Anybody know what this one is? Go ahead. Okay, God's what? His purpose? Okay. Um, I'm going to back up even a little bit before that. Not just his purpose. But we're going to add to it this kind of an idea. It's the argument of law of design and order. There's design and order. What we mean by that is in complex systems. By the way, right now, what is the most complex system closest to you? You. (laughs) It's you, your body. Is your body a complex system? Now, some of you are looking at your spouse. And saying they're more complex. Okay. I'm talking in the physical makeup. Okay. Are we a complex system? Our bodies itself. Okay. And the, the argument here in educational circles is the, the greater the design, there had to be some designer to bring about the order and the organization. Okay. here's what we mean by that. Some would say that things randomly come together. That they just, okay? That's like you and me saying, okay, um, I don't know, any of you wear wristwatches yet? Do you you still do that? Okay. Okay, I have a wristwatch. This thing didn't randomly come together. It randomly breaks on me periodically and scatters, but to say that something as complex as this, just ran, randomly came together. This thing is far less complex. It didn't randomly show up. Somebody did something. On this li- less complex order, what did, what did somebody do? Somebody designed it. Somebody put it together. Okay, that, this is like saying, okay, remember when they used to have newspapers? Remember when you, remember you used to read them? okay. On Sunday afternoons, what part did you read? Okay, I always picked the funnies, comics. They were the most educational. Okay. But to, say that, to say that something as complex as a newspaper with its three pages of news, 50 pages of advertisements, okay, that it just randomly came together. At the print shop, all this stuff just randomly came together. That newspaper is not as complex as you. And to say that something this complex can just random, something far less can't randomly come together. All of us will accept the fact that the complexity of a newspaper indicates there was a designer, writer. Okay, we, we can argue that about your car. We could argue on all these different things. When we start looking at the, at the order within the weather system, let's just pick one thing. The way the world is created and how the oceans help to keep our world. 
you know, in its, in its phases and stages without burning up or freezing up. It's an amazing, complex system. Extremely complex. I mean, think about this. The complexity of designing water so the top of the pond can freeze, but not, not the bottom. And that, what happens at the bottom during the freezing time? Th- that's where the fish are surviving. That's a very complex setup. Your eye is a complex setup. Okay? It's, it's just amazing. There's a designer. In fact, I'm going to bore you for a little bit. Okay? Forgive me for, for attempting to put you even further to sleep. But if you want just... Uh, these are older books. But they're just little simpler books. This is a set by Paul Little. Know why you believe. And the second one was know what you believe. And it's just, you can see it's, it's not a real thick book. It's really excellent for just dealing with basic Bible beliefs and, and understanding some of these uh, discussions. Anyway, he, um, he has in this book, I want to just read one section of this, where he's talking about this idea of how things that are complex, how they, they come together. And he uses a, a variety of illustrations. He says like this, If the earth itself, by design, if it were much smaller in atmosphere... Uh, it would be if it were much smaller, an atmosphere would be impossible. Example of Mercury and the Moon. If it were much larger, the atmosphere would contain free hydrogen, Jupiter or Saturn. Its distance from the Sun is correct. Even a small change would make it too hot or too cold. Our Moon, probably responsible for the continents and ocean bases, is unique in our solar system and seems to have originated in a way quite different from other relatively smaller moons. The tilt of the Earth's axis ensures the seasons, and so on, and so on, and so on. In this book, that's, um, whoops, I put down. This is a book that came out of Pensacola Christian College. It's called Bible Doctrines, and it has a summary of all different types of Bible doctrines. They're quoting from a scholar from ages ago. The most potent cause of the belief was the uniform motion and revolution of the heavens and the varied groups and ordered beauty of the sun, moon, and stars, the very sight of which in itself is enough to prove that these things are not mere effect of chance. When a man goes into a house or a wrestling school or public assembly and observes in all that's going on, the arrangement, the regularity, the system, he cannot possibly suppose that these things just came about without a cause. He realizes there is someone who presides, who controls, Therefore, with the vast movements and phases of the heavenly bodies, these ordered processes of a multitude of enormous masses of matter, which throughout the countless ages in the past have never in the smallest degree played false, he is compelled to infer that these mighty world motions are regulated by a superior mind. Now, the heavenly bodies and all those things that display a never-ending regularity cannot be, have been created by man. Therefore, that which creates them is superior to man. Yet what better name is there for this than God? By the way, this is written right around the first century or before by Cicero. He was smart enough to realize... Here, let, let me bore you a little bit more. Okay, let, Let's talk about the sun. Okay, And just a little bit, a few facts about the sun. Okay? 
It says this, in the order of the universe, the sun is an ordinary medium-sized star. In fact, it's very small compared to some of the others. Yet its energy and violence almost defies imagination. It is a dense mass of glowing matter, a million times the volume of the earth, in a permanent state of nuclear activity. Every second, four million tons of hydrogen are destroyed in explosions that start somewhere near the core of the sun, where the temperature is about 55 million degrees Fahrenheit. That's hot. More energy than man could use since the dawn of civilization is radiated by this normal star in just one second. The Earth's entire oil, coal, and wood reserves would fuel the sun's energy output to the Earth for just a day or two. Tongues of hydrogen, flame. Uh, Let me jump down. Matter at the core of the sun is so hot that a pinhead of it would give off enough heat to kill a man 100 million miles away. He goes on, he makes this comment. The heat of the sun is so great that a body of solid ice as large as the earth would be melted within, within short time if the sun came closer. And if the earth itself would fall into the sun, it would be completely vaporized in seconds. The distance between the earth and the sun is 93 million miles. Astronomers have estimated that if the distance were increased 120 million miles instead of the 93 million, our planet would be a perpetual frozen arctic. The life on it would be impossible. If, on the other hand, the distance were reduced to... 60 million miles. The surface of the earth would be glowing furnace, again making life impossible. But the wonder is that the ball of fire that we call the sun is exactly 93 million miles away, the exact distance to provide the earth with a balanced amount of heat and light to make life in all of its forms possible and also to divide the earth into climactic zones to make variation in plant and animal life possible. Here again we notice the perfect balance in nature. Even among those remote heavenly bodies, the perfect balance has been maintained with mathematical precision ever since the cosmic machine was set in motion. There is no rational explanation for this supreme engineering achievement without a supreme intelligent master designer. Okay, that's quoting from The Wonders of Creation, a scientist. Can any sane person believe that all this array of stars and the vast celestial adornment could have been created out of atoms rushing to and fro and at random? Could any other being devoid of intelligence and reason have created the universe? Not merely did their creation postulate intelligence, but it is impossible to understand their nature without intelligence of a high order. If any man is not impressed by this coordination of things and the harmonious combination of nature to secure the preservation of the world, I know for certain that he has never given any consideration to these items. Again, I quote Cicero. We go a little bit further. And just, again, just to give you just an idea, the way the bee works. It's just fascinating when you talk about these critters. Its structure, the bee is the most wonderful little creature. Its head is equipped with two multiple eyes, those of a fly, like the fly. Besides the eye, it has two rod-like projections on the head which serve as uh, the sense organ for touch and smell. Each rod is again supplied with countless microscopic, microscopic sense receptors by which the bee receives the sensory stimuli. Its feet are shod with sharp claws, which enable it to walk over rough surfaces, and in between the claws are attached suction pads, which make it possible for it to walk on glass or any smooth surface, or even to hold itself in an upside-down position on a ceiling. Its hind legs are attached to it. The hind legs are attached little basket-like devices in which it carries the pollen gathered from the flowers for food to share with the rest of the colony. But while the bee gathers the pollen for the food, it also carries from flower to flower, thereby performs the most important service 
service of fertilizing the flower, making full development and repetition possible. The wings of the bees are amazingly efficient. They're powerful, moving at an incredible speed of 75 beats a second. They are so constructed that the bee can move either up, down, sideways, or hover motionless over a flower. Perhaps the most remarkable feature about this insect is the chemical laboratory in its body in which it converts into honey the nectar it is gathered from the flowers. This honey is the sweetest substance in the world. And when we add this to the skill of the builder of the wax cells to store honey and its unique ability to manufacture the beehive, he says it's an uncanny sense of direction which enables it to go far afield to gather the nectar and yet always finding its way back in the shortest, straightest possible way. We again are overawed by the wisdom and goodness of a creator designer who designed the little insect and assigned to its task of the purpose of providing uh, honey for man's enjoyment. Then we go a little bit further and we look at something that is kind of more gross that some of you would be really bugged by. The silk of the spider is produced in a specialized gland in its body. Minute ducks called spinnerets lead from the gland to the rear part of the spider to carry its secretion to the surface where exposed to the air it becomes a silken thread. These threads are so fine that no man-made instrument could make them so fine. But at the same time they are strong, elastic, and can stretch like a rubber band. In an experiment it was found that a rope one inch thick woven of spider webs was stronger than a rope of the same thickness made of steel wire. It's amazing. It's amazing when we keep on going and saying, okay, what, what about this? What about the water? Oh, there's there's um, materials here that are just, when we think about the water that's round about us and what's, what's going on, he makes this comment. He says, water is of high specific heat, has a high specific heat. This means that chemical reactions within the human body will be kept safe and stable. If water had a low specific heat, we would boil over with the least activity. Without this particular property of water, life would be hardly possible. The ocean is the world's thermostat. It takes a large loss of heat for water to pass from liquid to ice, and for water to become steam, quite an intake of energy. Hence the ocean is a cushion against the heat of the sun and the freezing blast of the winter. Unless the temperatures of the earth's surface were modulated by the ocean and kept within certain limits, life would either be cooked or frozen. Water is the universal solvent. It dissolves acids, bases, and salts. Chemically, it is inert, providing a medium for reactions without partaking in them. It is not readily decomposed. It dissolves many substances. It makes dry substances cohere and become flexible. With salts in its solution, it conducts electricity. Then alone, or almost alone, amongst fluids known to us, it reaches the greatest density when cooled. This has two important consequences. One is that lakes and ponds freeze at the top, not at the bottom. Fish life thus has a chance of surviving a very hard winter. Another consequence is that the expansion of water, it disrupts the rocks, breaks them down to form soil, carve out cliffs, valleys, makes vegetation possible. Water has the highest heat evaporation of any known... Did you ever stop to think why we're such creatures that have so much water? It's by God's design or the design. We could go on and talk about other things that are, that are here, but this is the most amazing design. And what does it all lead us to? There is a designer. There is somebody who has that in mind. I'm going to pick up next week. Sorry to bore you. I hope this uh, information that you can use in discussion 